Welcome to the Green Majority, Canada's longest-running environmental news hour. Who knew? We knew. We're on CIUT 89.5 FM in Toronto, of course, and broadcast on many community radio stations around the country. We're also available on podcast platforms. And my name is David Franklin Irwin Hostetter. I'm Christian. I'm Christian. Oh, wow. I really nailed that one. It's Halloween and you're caught Christian. Ooh. I am Stefan Christian Irwin Hostetter. And I am Lauren Elizabeth Cor Latour. And you're listening to The Green Majority. Thanks so much for tuning in. The pomegranate queen herself. I need you to explain that reference. Tease that I out think, for me. I think Cor is another name for Persephone, who was the wife of, um, is it is it Hades, the underworld guy? And there's a blue, blue fire hair from the movie. She's got the pomegranate. Apparently, Lauren is like laurel, like leaves. So I've got multiple plants in my name. It's fun. This is destiny. Meant to be. And we're going to do climate news. Very well curated and expanded. Just beautifully put together. And uh, climate movement news. And then Stefan's going to interview Sophie Krauss and Kenzie Harris from Banking for a Better Future about a global day of action to force banks to bank, actually bank for that better future. Is that right? I mean, it's like they, they, I don't think these banks are going to bank for a better future. I think it's a, it's a global day of action to uh, push banks to stop funding fossil fuels in solidarity, actually specifically with uh, what it would um, do to the coastal gassing pipeline. Which we'll be talking about in a second. But first, a listener was interested in the, in the Global Biodiversity Conference. Is that that's currently underway? It is currently underway. Currently underway. And so Stefan and Lauren are going to say a couple of things about that right now. For the next couple of weeks, we'll be diving in pretty deeply into the you know Conference of Parties COP. The, the listener very rightly, I think, noted that while this is going on and that in that the Conference of Parties on Climate Change is going to get a lot of the attention, this other conference, which is the 15th uh, United Nations Biodiversity Conference, which is currently ongoing in Kunming, China, is... I'm not gonna say as important, but or maybe as as important. Given that, but I think the agreements might not be as as binding in the same sort of way as as you might see in the UNFCC conferences. But it is still, you know, like biodiversity is unbelievably important, and so this conference is equally uh, important to protect. You know, the many many species we know that are going extinct, and you know the the many that we don't even know exist that we may be sending to extinction. And so very quickly, just want to run down what the goals or the hopeful goals of this conference are, and then I'll throw to you, Lauren. Uh, very quickly, the goals are to, one, create a plan across the entire land and waters of each country to make the best decisions about where to conduct activities like farming and mining while also retaining intact areas. Two, to ensure that the wild species are hunted and fished sustainably and safely. Three, reduce agriculture runoff, pesticides, and plastic pollution. Four, use ecosystem use ecosystems to limit climate change by storing planet warming carbon in nature. Five, reduce subsidies and other financial programs that harm biodiversity by at least $500 billion per year, the estimated amount that governments spend supporting fossil fuels and potentially damaging agricultural practices. And six, safeguard at least 30% of the planet's land and oceans by 2030. So as you can see, I think after the any one of these goals is quite audacious, but the summation, you know, well done, if done well, would be a pretty significant benefit. But to you, Laura. Yeah. So um, I think those, the sort of those points you just rattled off largely um, comprise what is being referred to as the Convention on Biological Di- Biodiversity. Um, and uh, they're like, they're working to develop a, a working draft of that during this convention, which is why it is so important. The full draft can, includes, I think it says like 21 targets that act as a as a blueprint for, for reducing biodiversity loss. Um, so they're right. And that we do all need to be paying more attention to this. I also understand though, that like biodiversity is kind of a complicated or not even complicated. It's just, it's a new concept to introduce people to. Um, it's also one that is, once you dig into it is as acutely frightening as anything that we talk about dealing specifically with, with carbon and and climate though, of course they are inextricably linked anyway, listening to those, uh, different sort of like measures that are being worked into this 
this convention paper, um, this treaty, I guess. Um, the one that jumps out to me is to safeguard at least 30% of the planet's land and oceans by 2030, which is like not a bad goal. It's, it's like you said, it's quite audacious. It would be leaps and bounds ahead of, of what most countries are putting forward right now and, and, and are on trajectory for. But at the same time, like so many of these international treaties still falls really grossly short of what the goal needs to be, which from what I understand in order to like, fingers crossed, prevent like total ecological collapse and like the following through of that sixth math, sixth mass extinction. I always have a hard time saying that, that we're in the middle of right now. It, it needs to be closer to about 50% of, of land and waters that need to be preserved. So like that 30% is positive, but not everything. So again, an example of a place where even with this, we need to push much, much harder. Um, and then the other thing, and, and again, I haven't read these full 21 targets, so I might be totally talking out of my butt here, but, um, it's a shame that nowhere, at least in this small list, does it reference, um, the fact that like our best bet for preservation of biodiversity is in like giving land back to indigenous communities and peoples and nations. Because if I, I believe I'm saying this correctly, um, 80% of the world's remaining biodiversity remains in lands and waters that are managed or under like sovereign ownership isn't the right word, but basically are managed or looked after by indigenous peoples and indigenous communities. So to me, one of the best ways that we can ensure like preservation of biodiversity going forward is, is sort of like really meaningfully, uh, incorporating land back sort of policies into, into any of our, of our environment. I don't know what I'm saying. We need to give the land back to indigenous peoples. And that's, what's going to help us with, with biodiversity is the long and short of it. So those are sort of two main flags I have here. Um, yeah, I was going to talk about a documentary I saw recently and how I was really frustrated because the main thing it talked about with, um, in, in terms of a solution for biodiversity loss was planting trees and how much that frustrated me given Canada's million or billion trees pledge. But I won't dig into that right now because I think it'll be nonsensical. Before we throw over to, to news, the one thing I wanted to highlight, uh, in that point you just made is that one of the actual concerns right now that's happened historically in regards to conservation efforts has been actually pushing indigenous people off the land to quote unquote conserve it. You know, that historically that's happened you know, historically and is in some ways still happening. And so, so often, and we'll actually, we'll go really deep into this, the rest of the show, I think it, when you start talking about net zero things, but you know, the way that you can make it sound like, oh, we're doing this thing that's actually, that's helping while actually directly hindering the ultimate goal. We have this notion in the West that in order to, preserve land or conserve or like conserve the environment, we have to like separate humans from it because there's no way that humans can live in symbiosis or in like, I don't know if you want to be poetic about it in harmony with non-human species. And, and so the way we go about preserving land is to remove people. And that's simply not true because indigenous peoples have lived on these lands for mil for thousands and in some cases, millions of years and have been able to do so in a way that like maintains that ecosystem integrity. So, so clearly it's not humans that are like incompatible with a healthy ecosystem. It's, it's, capitalism and the Western way of doing things. So, um, yeah, anyway, we'll move on because I could just ramble about this forever and it won't make any sense. The UN climate talks, uh, in Glasgow are two weeks away and that's right, right? Yeah, they start on the 31st. It's the 20th. So, so a little less than uh, about 10 days, okay. less than 10 days by the time this goes to air. And Quebec, the province of Quebec has announced that it will no longer allow any fossil fuel extraction in the province. Jenny Uecki notes for the National Observer that Quebec now joins Greenland, Ireland, and Denmark in banning future fossil fuel exploration. Andrea Germanos uh, notes for common dreams that legal action from the fossil fuel industry has already started and that Utica Resources sued the Quebec government last month for lost profits when the province rejected their application for exploratory drilling near Gaspé. Environmental Defense put out a statement reading in part, quote, This year's production gap report finds that Canada and other countries are still planning to produce more than double the amount of fossil fuels than would be consistent with our global com climate commitments. Uh, 
Yesterday, the Premier of Quebec announced a provincial ban on all fossil fuel extraction. Yet elsewhere in Canada, including in Ottawa, elected leaders are still not willing to admit what achieving net zero emissions really means, that we must transition off of fossil fuels. Canada needs to move forward with capping emissions from fossil fuel production and winding the sector down, rather than getting distracted by false solutions like carbon capture, which prolong our dependence on fossil fuels. Catherine Abreu, former executive director of Climate Action Network Canada, writes in an opinion piece for the National Observer that Mark Carney, who used to run the Bank of Canada and is now the UN Special Envoy for Climate Action and Finance, will, at the coming COP26 climate talks in Glasgow, be trying to get large global banks, investors, and financial institutions to join uh, a Glasgow financial alliance for net zero. But Abreu notes that many standing members of this net zero alliance are still pouring money into fossil fuels, so that even if all the world's financial institutions sign on to the alliance, they'll continue expanding fossil fuels unless the alliance adopts a no-expansion requirement. Over 90 climate justice groups recently sent a letter to Carney demanding this, and they took out ads in global newspapers. Abreu also notes that Canadian banks gave over $1.5 billion in so-called sustainability-linked financing to Enbridge, which the company used to expand their pipeline network, including Line 3 through Minnesota. This was spun as green investing, simply because Enbridge is aiming to reduce its emissions intensity and become a net-zero company by 2050, neither of which statements even necessarily mean reducing their overall emissions. The very idea of net-zero, of course, is letting companies get away with expanding fossil fuel production while, pr while pushing climate action indefinitely into the future. As Dyke, Watson, and Knorr write for The Conversation, the net-zero concept is causing us to gamble our civilization on no more than promises of future solutions. In Michigan, Enbridge recently had to shut down Line 5 temporarily after activists broke into a station containing an emergency shut-off valve. In B.C., Wet'suwet'en land defenders sent a letter to the investors and financiers of Coastal GasLink and LNG Canada arguing that they must remove all investment from these two projects because they are illegal, according to Wet'suwet'en, Canadian, and international law. The projects are clearly in defiance of UNDRIP, which Canada and B.C. have officially adopted. The Canadian Supreme Court has already affirmed that the Wet'suwet'en themselves hold jurisdiction over the land in question. Coastal GasLink has been building an LNG pipeline through that land, and LNG Canada will be receiving the liquid gas in a terminal in Kitimat. The letter also notes that the financial incentive itself is questionable because fossil fuels are on the way out, and that the investors should come and meet with the Wet'suwet'en community leaders. In an update sent out this week from the Wet'suwet'en front line, land defenders are now digging in for the winter, at the site where Coastal GasLink plans to start drilling under the Wedzinkwa River. One Wet'suwet'en chief has said that if CGL does not remove all their equipment, it will be seized and decommissioned. Supporters have also recently shown up to the area from Haudenosaunee. Spokesperson Slado said, quote, We all knew at one point, at some point, they would try to drill under Wedzinkwa, and we've always known that it's not allowed. It's too sacred for us and too important to ever let that happen. Down in the U.S. Capitol, a protest organized by the Sunrise Movement has five of its members prepared to go on a hunger strike until Washington manages to pass its $3.5 trillion climate bill. Biden seems ready to water down the bill and compromise with industry by getting rid of a national clean energy standard for utility companies. The Guardian quotes hunger striker Emma Govea, who just turned 18, as saying, quote, I'm nervous in that I know that I will go on hunger strike until the demands are met, until I'm absolutely physically unable to. 
I won't let Joe Biden send a message to the world that he's willing to give up on climate because I know that the American people and young people across the country and across the world are terrified, but they're ready to fight. Sunrise protesters have also been rallying outside of Kirsten Cinema's office, Joe Manchin's yacht, and Josh Gottheimer's driveway. Kate Aronoff writes for the New Republic, quote, Contrary, perhaps, to centrists' expectation, Sunrise activists and several progressive legislators who backed Bernie Sanders and his $16.3 trillion Green New Deal in the primary have become the fiercest defenders of the White House's far more modest Build Back Better program. As they themselves sometimes observe with frustration, they've been more outspoken than Biden himself has been in defending his legislative agenda. Before I just let out a guttural scream into the void about the ongoing uh, gutting of the Build Back Better and the fact that I keep deciding every day to read the new thing that apparently is not going to happen in the new way we're going to be sad. I'm going to pivot entirely to the banking industry because that's a positive tone, I say sarcastically. And I'm doing this partially because we can expect it to come up a lot, uh, you know, in the next coming weeks, whether it's positive mentions from the mainstream press uh, about the recent net zero pledge, you know, all six, especially here in Canada, all six of the Canada's biggest banks have signed on to Mark Carney's alliance that you know, Dave referenced earlier, or in the context of the massive protests being planned next Friday, uh, October 29th, and much more of that can be heard in the interview that's upcoming with Bank for a Better Future in a second. But I think the reason why I want to focus on it is because I actually think the banks need to understand the same lesson that people have been yelling at the Canadian government. And ultimately, it's the same concern that exists with net zero. All three of these conversations, I think, in some ways come down to the same single conversation, which is all support must be removed for, from fossil fuel or exploration in all ways. And for the duration of their very limited shelf life, the, of fossil fuels, we must redirect any support we are going to give these industries to the workers of themselves and towards a just transition. That's it. Like that's the conversation you have to have with banks who, and how many times they're going to say we're going to be net zero while still giving money away to, to new fossil fuel exploration. That's the conversation we're having with the liberal government. Every time Trudeau mentions the fact that he's committed to, uh, you know, to tackling climate change and yet continues to build TMX. And that's a conversation you have to have about net zero hawks in general, who consistently argue that as long as we can find some way to remove carbon, then we can extend the life of fossil fuel use in some other way, which again, is not possible given the timelines and what we have to happen. All three of these conversations, I think, are the exact same conversation. And it's just that people have to accept the fact that the time for fossil fuels is over and at this point, none of these major institutions really want to do that. Obviously, with COP coming up, we're really curious to see what the Canadian government has to bring to the table um, in an effort to try to like salvage their reputation and look good on the global stage. We know there is a lot of like good promises that came out of uh, the election, obviously, and uh, for instance, like uh, with um, with NRCAN and National Resources uh, working on the just transition legislation. Like that's all really exciting. There's potentially good stuff coming down the pike, but like it doesn't amount to, it's not that it doesn't amount to anything. It's just that it doesn't amount to much if we can't at the very least, like commit to, commit to phase out, commit to sunsetting that industry. Um, so yeah, in, com in complete agreement with you there. It's also really exciting to see, to see these banking campaigns going forward right now. Um, super stoked to hear the interview that you have coming up after this segment. Um, because I feel like that's a campaign that's like still fairly new. It's just gearing up. I shouldn't say just gearing up. It's been happening for a long time, but, um, I feel like it's like reaching this kind of fever pitch right now. And it's really cool to see that take off. Um, I'm going to jump around a little bit to, uh, the last story Dave was covering, which was, um, talking about the climate bill that is on the rocks not in a fun drinking way, um, down in the U S capital, in the U S capital, down in the States. Um, so basically it's this, uh, it's this climate bill that is part of a multi-trillion, um, omnibus budget bill, uh, that I 
that has been like branded the build back better bill. Um, and basically, okay, I was listening and reading about it just today. So I'm going to try to summarize why the climate element of this bill is tanking to tell you a bit about the bill. It's basically designed to force corporations to reduce their emissions from electricity by 4% every year through a combination of like incentives and penalties money. If you go along with the plan, a financial penalty, if you don't go along with the plan, basically, um, if, if organizations fail to comply and ultimately if all of these organizations complied, it could result in like in electricity being 80% decarbonized by 2030 in the States, which is huge. It's not quite at that, like 100% decarbonization by 2030, uh, which is kind of the general consensus of, of, of what it needs to be, but 80% is really solid progress. So it would be fantastic if it were implemented fully. Joe Manchin, a Democrat who we've talked about before on this show, uh, a Democrat from West Virginia, he's a Senator. He is nearly always the swing vote because he is so, 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 so right wing for being a Democrat's uh, senator. And he holds the power here like he usually does, um, insisted that in order for him to support the bill, that this climate energy element of it, he would have to write the bill. And he then took several months to sort of consult everybody and write this bill before, I guess, about a week ago, he started saying that he would kill it and that he would never support it because it would bode so poorly for workers in his state, West Virginia. It's a, it's a coal mining, it's, it's coal country basically. Um, so even given the opportunity to write the bill, he wouldn't sign his name and support it. So that is why effectively this bill is at risk of, of dying because there is no, if you lose that swing vote, then you're not going to have enough votes to pass it. So here's the thing about Joe Manchin. We know he's trash. He's always been trash. Apparently there's like a story going around today that he has put down in paper that he's thinking of like walking across the floor and switching to a Repu- uh, to, re- to the Republicans. And I mean, like, hey, I know like Democrats and Republicans are two sides of the same coin, but like there is still a, I hate the phrase lesser of two evils, but that, that that's the case in this situation. Anyway. He says that he doesn't want to support the bill because it doesn't uh, serve workers in his state. But here's the thing. He quite literally owns millions of dollars in coal stocks because he fund, he, he, he founded several coal companies in the 80s. And then when he became a senator, he passed ownership and leadership of those companies on to his son. So this is a man who is directly benefiting from the coal industry in his state, refusing to support a climate bill. And it's all totally legal. Like there is no sort of like collusion. There's no like back room dealings here. It's it's totally of the letter of the law, but it's just another example of the vested industry or the vested interests of the oil and gas industry and the coal industry totally derailing um, climate policy and any sort of progress that we could possibly have. Um in, in the States and in Canada. Um, and now everybody's sort of scrambling to try to pick up the pieces and try to keep this bill on the tracks. And I don't know that they'll be able to do so. Maybe not in a legal sense, but in a, in, a, in, a, in just in a, in a definition sense, it's still, a, that's the conflict of interest, right? Like that's what conflict of interest means. He can't serve the public good because he's invested in something that's against it. No, straight up. Absolutely. I, I would consider that a conflict of interest, although it's technically legal. It, feels like it shouldn't be well and just like i know that mansion you know is holding it up cinemas holding up other there there are people you know specifically within the democratic party holding it up but surely there's something there's something else that like biden could be doing no there's there must be something else i mean at this point who knows like it's very hard i I read a thing about someone being like does anyone know if someone has just tried to like straight up like what if biden said i will give every west virginian a hundred thousand dollars like, what if that was within the range of conversation? And and maybe that's possible. Maybe there's something else. But the other thing about this is that it's, I think the problem here is that it's absolutely not, it's, it's, it has nothing to do actually with his care for West Virginia even. Because like only 2% of the state is employed by coal in West Virginia at this point. Like it's historically a coal, st- a coal, a coal state, but coal has been slowly decreasing in, in value. And so it's been going down. And like, I'm sure that there are more, like, I'm sure there's more fights, more things that could be happening here, more, more things ongoing. But at the same time, there's also just a thing of like, there, when it's, when you get stuck so specifically on individuals without really any type of meaningful ideology 
except like no, because like here's Mansion saying it's too expensive. I want to cut it down to 1.75, and yet supports 7.5 trillion dollars for the Pentagon. And so, if you can support 7.5 trillion dollars Pentagon, but 3.5 trillion dollars on domestic issues is somehow too expensive, then that idea goes out the window, right? And this is the problem. The problem, I think, is that there's just not any specific levers you can really pull because, like, Mansion's probably going to lose next too. You know, West Virginia is getting more and more conservative. Probably the Republicans going to beat him in West Virginia. And so he's on his last ride out and he's making a ton of money from all these different places that are just supporting him fighting back in this thing. Like, it's it's hard to say. Uh, to me, I can't imagine a world where the 3.5, like where literally the backbone, the only thing the Democrats are trying to do at all, this entire, like they've, they've, they've tried to get, they're like, they're moving voting rights legislation forward or trying to back up blocked it today as well. They're moving other things forward, but like this bill is their entire agenda. And so I can't imagine they would not pull out the stops, any stops to, to get it passed. Well, and and from what I understand, like, that's the thing. It's like, he's like willing and ready to take executive action. But the problem with something like executive action or with regulations via the EPA or whatever, is that like, those can be repealed as soon as somebody else comes into power. So if he were to lose the next election, those things are gone. I don't know why I just whistled like a cartoon character. I'm so sorry to listeners. That was probably really abrasive, but, um, but yeah, so it's no, well, no. And you're right. It's like, we, there is there's no way that you can convince a person like Joe Manchin or like so many Republicans that it's actually in in the best interest of their constituents to flip and vote for vote in favor of this bill, because like it's the problem isn't that the bill doesn't benefit their constituents. It does. The problem is, is that if if this bill passes, Joe Manchin is going to lose several million dollars, several hundred million dollars. And it's America is effectively an oligarchy and it's just the ruling class supporting themselves. So like, what do you, what do you do? I don't know. Without the guillotine. You starve yourself in front of the Capitol. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like I mean, that's the thing. Yeah. Like, and kudos to everyone fighting this, right? Like kudos to everyone who's pushing this and all the ways that you're building power, but it's got to feel rough right now. And, and it's interesting, like, you know, we're only in this position at all, let's remember, because the Democrats miraculously won both senators in Georgia. Like, the fact that, like, let this be the end of anyone pretending that Mitt Romney is a reasonable individual. Like, let's be real here. That dude's in the Senate. He could walk over to the Democrats and be like, give Utah a billion dollars, and they would do it in a heartbeat for his vote on this bill. And yet all 50 Republican senators are aligned in rejecting this despite, you know, Murkowski is still there. Like there are t- a plenty of Republican senators who could just be the kingmaker instead of Manchin or Cinema, And all of them are choosing that that's not worth their time. And so like, it, yes, we focus on these two people, but it's a, it's a broader set of people who are blocking this as well. And so like, let's, let's pr- stop pretending any, any of these other people are, are going to save us either because they're not. And also, of course, because everything is in the back, everything is set against the backdrop of COP this month. It's like, I think the the Biden administration is going to have a really hard time showing up at COP this year and being like, we're back. Don't worry. America's got it. We're going to be a climate leader when it's like, do you got it? Because you're being blocked at every avenue and it's going to be really hard for you to take the ambitious action you've been promising when this is what you're being left with. And, and again, it's, he's going to have to rely on the, those executive measures, but it remains to be seen how effective those will be. Democracy so, is alive and well, guys. It's going to be exactly. fine. It's going to be fine. So if you've listened to this part and been like, man, that's depressing. Let me tell you, the interview next is, uh, is an inspiring one. It gives you a, a way to uh, take action and next week on the 29th. So stay tuned uh, and listen to the, the lovely people from Begging for a Better Future because- you know, just like the people who are fighting in the states to try to get Joe Manchin to to put in, in the you know in the Biden administration to put some climate policies there, there's similar fights going on here in Canada uh, that are at your doorstep uh, with our major banking system. So enjoy this great interview.
We are here continuing our episode talking about banking, and we're so stoked to be joined by Sophie Krauss and Kenzie Harris, organizers with Banking for a Better Future. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. So let's lay the groundwork here a little bit before we we dive in. What is Banking for a Better Future for folks who haven't heard of y'all's work, and what are you working towards? And we'll start with you, Kenzie. Yeah, so for context, since 2016, the big five Canadian banks have poured over $700 billion in financing to fossil fuels through their loans and investments. And we know the sides are clear that globally we are set to burn 50% more fossil fuels than is consistent with staying below two degrees uh, of warming. And our banks are still continuing to finance more fossil fuel production and expansion projects. And we know that without the loans from these banks, these projects wouldn't be possible. So once one bank commits to divestment, the others would surely have to follow to remain competitive. And so they know climate matters to the climate base. Um, and they know change is inevitable, but they're putting it off just so that they can do what's most profitable for them. So those of us that bank on a better future are hoping that we can gain enough public pressure to really make a clear message that financing fossil fuels poses a serious reputational risk and that they have to act on that. So Baking on a Better Future is a youth-led campaign, and as young people, we have power. We're RBC's current and future customers and the future of the workforce. And movements around the world are uniting to stand up to this big finance-powered force, and we're finally demanding that they change. As climate activists, we can help build a really powerful movement in Canada by uniting across regions and cultivating a solidarity and ties with land defenders to take on these institutions that are behind the destruction of the climate. And so we're really working to grow a network of people committed to fighting the funders of climate doom, which includes land defenders, NGOs, student drinkers, and climate activists. That was awesome. I, I had a conversation about a couple of months ago now with someone who's doing a bunch of research into the banks. And I was curious from his perspective, what they were worried about, or if they were worried about this growing movement against them. And interestingly, he said he was, they were not so much worried about the moving money situation of older people, because they sort of figured they had them locked in, but it was actually the youth they were scared about. They were actively worried that they would lose, you know, youth's money and that they would, it's so much easier for young people to move their money. So it's great that there's something that's growing pressure from, from the youth and clearly they're hearing it, which I thought was really interesting. But to, to move on to this, you touched on this a little bit, Kenzie, but I wonder if we can dive in a little bit more, maybe with you, uh, Sophie, about how we see the banking's role, in not just the climate crisis, but also in society at large. Yeah, for sure. So Across the globe, huge financial institutions are pouring money into expanding tar sands, oil and gas, and coal production with no attention to the human rights of those impacted on the front lines or the climate destructions these pro projects will lock in. Powerful banking institutions that claim to care about the climate crisis have the opportunity to be partners in building a sustainable future. However, instead of helping Canada become a place where Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples can live in harmony with each other and nature, Banks like RBC are profiting from a colonial business model of extractivism and destruction. And they're hoping that they can hide their behavior behind greenwashing efforts because they understand that once people find out about their destructive investments, their brand and their profits will begin to suffer. The climate crisis is not just about emissions. I'd like to read a message from Wet'suwet'en hereditary leaders who can best answer this question. Hashtag RBC is killing me is a slogan by the Wet'suwet'en land defenders and the Gidditman checkpoint. The bank's investments, which pay for activity that steamrolls through unceded territory, are destroying the land defenders' bases of existence. With UNDRIP having been passed into law, this example of avoiding free, prior, and informed consent is actually now illegal. The Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs present a governance system that predates colonialist colonization in the Indian Act, which was created in an attempt to outlaw Indigenous peoples from their lands, quote, read by the website for land defenders at Giddington Checkpoint. Quote, at this very moment, they continue a standoff is unfolding, the outcome of which 
will determine the future of Northern BC for generations to come, BC in quotations. Will the entire region be overtaken by the fracking industry or will indigenous peoples asserting their sovereignty be successful in repelling the assault on their homelands? Question mark, unquote. The land defenders fighting for their lives and their yinta, which is their land, Giddimpton checkpoint, and are wet sweating from Ka Yik, Grizzly House, and Giddimpton Bear Clan. We are banking on a better future. We are banking on a better future. Sorry, believe in the potential of a regenerative economy and recognize that the banks do not meet the standards of such. This is why we highlight the potential of credit unions as alternatives instead of fintech alternatives. For example, we recognize that credit unions. Credit unions as community cooperatives that are member-owned represent the values of a regenerative economy by practicing deeper democracy and working for their members and not their shareholders. Awesome. And that's such a powerful call to action that I think segues perfectly into what's happening next Friday, you know, which is a global day of action, but also, which is, which is also happening here. So what are you going to be doing? And what are folks, uh, what are you asking folks to do? Yeah, so next Friday, young people, land defenders, and allied activists from across the globe will be calling on banks to defund climate chaos in this global day of climate action. So there will be hundreds of actions around the world in key financial centers like London and New York, but also in cities and towns across the U.S., the U.K., Germany, France, Africa, and Asia. So young people in so-called Canada will be targeting RBC to stop funding the destruction of our future and that as well show solidarity with wet sweat land defenders. And so this date in particular was relevant because on November 1st, the UN Climate Conference is happening in Glasgow, known as COP26, and it has a focus on climate finance. So this provides a really crucial opportunity to put pressure on RBC into ceasing their fossil fuel investment and respecting indigenous rights. So ultimately, for this day of action, our demands are the following. One, ending fossil fuel finance. So no new expansion projects. Number two is to respect and uphold free, prior, and informed consent of indigenous people. And number three is to defund the coastal gasoline pipeline. So these actions, again, will be unifying under the indigenous chosen hashtag RBC is killing me. And artwork will depict a bear defeating the RBC lion. And all of the actions will be amplified locally, nationally, and globally using on online ads pushed directly at RBC employees nationwide. So specifically in Toronto, the headquarters of all five big banks in Canada, we'll be meeting at Bay and Wellington intersection, which is 181 Bay Street at 2 p.m. to deliver our message. So our plan is to create a street mural and we'll have some other performances and speakers throughout the session as well. And those in the area that should come prepared with the usual, so signs, your energy and your peers. And similar actions will also be taking place in major cities such as Montreal and Vancouver. And of course, COVID safety protocols will be in effect. Awesome. And so perhaps let's take a second to, to dive into the two of you. Personally, I find the stories of how folks found themselves moving into activism is the most inspiring call to action into activism. You know, people often see themselves as not a part of this kind of thing until you do one thing and then you suddenly find yourself falling down the rabbit hole and then you're on about 16 different Slack channels. But uh, So maybe starting with you, Sophie, what inspired you personally to get involved in the climate fight? Yeah, so I didn't actually write much down for this. So I didn't write anything at all, but I'll just give my little anecdote. So it was in quarantine and I was definitely realizing, like I was seeing how like climate change was being impacted by the pandemic. But at that point in time, before I joined any movements, I had a very surface level understanding of what climate change and the climate movement even was. Like most people, I just kind of thought, yeah, the planet's warming. That's pretty scary. Like, let's hop on that. Let's change that. It wasn't until I joined, which I think is a similar case with a lot of other white identified organizers, is that this movement was so much more intersectional and encompassing of marginalized folks, especially Indigenous peoples, especially in so-called Canada as well. And I just felt with the privilege I had and the ability I had, I, I needed to stay in this fight and I needed to put my energy and rage towards something better. So when I started, I originally just wanted to go to stop global warming. But what I'm here for now is to uphold Indigenous rights, to help amplify the marginalized voices who are being most impacted by the climate crisis, 
and also to try and just secure like a just transition and a renewable regenerative economy for all. Because I feel like that's what everyone deserves. Awesome. Thanks. And uh, you, Kenzie? Yeah, my answer largely mirrors so bees. I mean, I think, again, it's a pretty common experience for white identified organizers. The experiences of BIPOC folks or BIPOC people are not amplified by the news. And so I think this reflects a lot of the individualism that we're conditioned to. Our media is white dominated, so we don't hear these kind of stories of the people who are most affected by the climate crisis. And so it wasn't really until 2019 that I saw the momentum coming out of Fridays for Futures movement that I felt like I could be involved. And again, like Sophie, when I started, it was because I wanted to fight for my future and the the future for my potential kids if I decide to have them. But I understand that this fight is actively happening now and people are being affected now by the climate crisis and that it's so much grander than what I'm going to experience in so-called Canada. And as a climate organizer that identifies with a lot of privilege, I've also really been pushing or I've been trying to understand this messaging that once everyone's needs and are met, once everyone is safe and health is a top priority, it serves like 99% of us better. Because if all of our individual needs are met, we can actually achieve a collective liberation. And people who have their needs met are just they're able to experience more joy, right? And they're more enjoyable to be around because they don't have to be in survival mode all the time. So I think just the messaging that collective liberation is the only way to achieve climate justice and it's now what inspires me to continue. Yeah, it's it's interesting to hear your two reflections on how you found yourself entering this movement and growing within it. Mirrors, I would say, even you know, still my experience of say the last 10 to 15 years of the climate movement moving in that direction. But moving on, so I'm unfortunately going to flip this back, I think, to rather than the hopeful optimism back to the sort of a, a deeper question about how you find yourselves wading through this moment. Because it's interesting also that, that you'll sort of find yourself seemingly both joining right around the time that we then sort of all got locked indoors for an extended period of time, which I can't imagine really helps this feeling. So the two-part question, starting with you, Kenzie, and then going to you, Sophie, do you find yourself dealing with eco-anxiety? And then if you do, how do you combat it? And, you know, imagine there are people out there very similar to you listening to the show who, you know, could probably use some advice. Yeah. So just confirming your experiences every day, I experience <laughs> anxiety every day, which I think is a pretty common experience, especially when I'm not working on climate justice related projects. If I have to put my head to the books and do my schoolwork, that's usually when I experience it the most because especially as young people, it's really hard to see the value in continuing to contribute to a system in a state that's not supporting us financially or with our health or anything. And is it acting to mitigate or prepare for the future violence that we know is to come? So getting involved in the movement is honestly the most effective way to combat climate anxiety. And I know everyone said that, but Truly, especially someone who struggled myself with my mental health, I can appreciate how hard it is to move through these emotions and actually take the first step. But I am just going to plug very briefly an initiative that's called Our Climate Cafe for people that might need the support. They offer collective discussions and journaling sessions, which would be a really great place for people to start if they feel like they need to release or harness what they're dealing with other like-minded people. Because so often we sit in our silos and we don't really seek help from others. And for me personally, actually one of the best teachings that I've learned is that we should be reaching out to others and collectively supporting one another. As we've learned from primarily BIPOC led movements throughout history, collective action is always going to be the antidote to despair and that connection's the source for hope. So it's such a breath of fresh air to meet like-minded people who are interested in working together and who you can actually have a conversation about climate with that feels somewhat productive. And it's so critical that you have people who can relate to these emotional experiences that you're having, who can un- truly understand it and who are invested in the work. And so joining the movement, it's also helpful because I know firsthand all of the grassroots efforts that are going into creating a better world. So where our media does a pretty terrible job at highlighting some of these great stories in contrast to their ability to touch on all of the bad that's going on, it's really, really amazing to get to see firsthand the stories of communities or groups that are coming together to really just build something beautiful. That was pretty free and heartwarming. Uh, yeah, basically my experience very heavily mirrors Kenzie's response. Yes, I I 
get equal anxiety every day, like she mentioned. It's how can you not? It's pretty debilitating, especially as a youth, to grow up and learn how long we've known about this issue and yet refuse to properly address it. And just understanding all that we have to overcome to actually mitigate the climate crisis from where we're at right now, like it's actually debilitating and it's not only terrifying, but also very enraging to know like how systems have just failed us again and again in trying to secure a safe climate future. So yes, I definitely understand those sentiments. And again, what I would suggest is like getting involved with climate organizations, because that definitely is like Kenzie said, like what we primarily learned from BIPOC-led movements throughout history is that collective, like coming together and taking action collectively is definitely an antidote for despair. But one thing I think I have noticed that's helped me the most is not only going in and taking action with others, like other like-minded people, you know, just finding people who care as much as you and who share the same sentiments, but knowing why you're there. I used to join these climate movements, go to these actions, almost out of place of fear, feeding into my eco-anxiety, but reflecting, talking to others and trying to ground myself saying like, why am I here taking action right now? Like, what is the purpose of me being here? And I learned that the only way that you can combat eco-anxiety via taking climate action is to have it come from a place of hope. Because even in the most desperate times where we feel like nothing we can do is going to change anything, like every day the movement is growing and every day we see more news about the climate, however minimal it may be, or we might see like an organization make, for lack of a better word, pretty half-assed climate, climate agreements or like climate targets, but still making the effort and more people are joining every day more people are getting upset about it. And the population keeps growing and there's more youth that are just going to get mad and they'll understand that we have to come together. So I feel like Knowing how much we're growing and how much people power we each have when we come together is definitely what we need to be able to combat this debilitating feeling of kind of the world coming in on us, basically. Yeah, for sure. And so let's talk about that. Let's talk about getting involved. People have now heard this. They are inspired to want to take the next step. And just so happens, like I will say that actions end up being such a great chance to dip your toe into it because a ton of people are there. You can bring your friends. You can just have a, a time and, and really begin to feel like feeling of collective power. So there happens to be one next week. How can folks get involved in the 29th and keep informed about your work? Yes. So as Kenzie mentioned, next Friday, the day of the action, there will be large-scale actions in Toronto and so-called Montreal and so-called Vancouver. So head to those if you can. But for folks outside of Toronto, also known as Toronto, you can visit rbcrevealed.com and check out the October 29th action map so you can find an action near you. That's rbcrevealed.com, folks. And if you don't see an action in your area, we've actually put together a toolkit if people would like to participate in this action by themselves or with friends or with a local group. And you can find this toolkit at our link tree. So it's going to be linktr.ee slash bank four, that's number four, better future. So yeah, our link tree at Bank for Better Future, you'll be able to find our toolkit there. Alternatively, we have some poster templates and online action toolkits available on our site at bankingonabetterfuture.org slash actions if folks are interested in doing some simple postering or email slash phone actions. And another easy idea is leaving a chalk message, which is one of my personal favorites on any of the sidewalks outside the branches. And it's just a really easy way to take action. And it's kid-friendly too, which would be great to get your kids involved. Remember, as young people, we have power and we are RBC's current and future customers and the future of their workforce. So to stay informed about the future actions we make as well, make sure you're following at bank for better future on Instagram and or bank for future on Twitter. Shameless plug. That's the whole point of that. That's great. So I have a tradition and I didn't prep either of you for this, so you cannot take it if you want, but I have a tradition of giving guests the last word of the show. But before I do that, thank you so much. This has been Sophie Krause and Kenzie Harris, organizers with Banking for a Better Future, October 29th, aka next Friday, if you're listening to this live on CAUT, is the Global Day of Action. 
all the ways that Sophie just mentioned, you can find out what's up, uh, but there's so many actions. Really just Google, I just literally, before I, I Googled the global day of action, October 29th, and you'll find at least five different websites telling you about how to get involved. So really it's easy to do get involved. Please do get involved. But yeah, last words, last thoughts for the episode. Take it away. Okay, I'll go. All you folks and wherever you are listening to this, I see you. And what I'm telling you is that you need to get in the climate movement. If you're feeling despaired, if you're feeling distraught, if you're worried that the world's falling in on you, hey, don't worry. There's plenty of us. Join the movement and become a collective part of change. Yeah, I I did not prepare for this, but I'm going <laughs> to just quote. I actually, I don't have the exact quote, but I've Something that I've really been sticking with me recently is something by Valerie Kapoor. I hope I said her name correctly. She discusses the concept of revolutionary love. And so I just want to leave people with the message of love yourself, love others, and love your opponent. And if you don't think you can do that, read Valerie Kapoor's book, because uh, truly that concept has really, really helped me in my activism. And I hope that it's helped for others too. 